That idea of productive struggle is, is really underestimated. There's no growth without some form of discomfort. Hi, I'm Julie Hyde, and I'm passionate about inspiring leaders to step up and lead and be powerful role models for those around them. My guests are all doing just that, and I ask them to share how they are making it count and how they have created their success. I can't wait to share their amazing stories with you. Cameron Schwab was appointed CEO of the AFL Richmond Football Club at the young age of 24, the youngest in the history of the AFL. He then spent the next 25 years as the CEO of three AFL clubs, which is the second longest serving CEO in the modern game. He's now the founder and CEO of Design CEO, which is a a very successful leadership and strategy business, working with major organizations across a broad range of industry and sporting sectors. Now, Cameron is obviously very well known, particularly in the sporting sector, but also within the coaching and leadership sector as well. Cameron is a, a really deep thinker and I admire his approach, the frameworks and methodologies that he has come up with, which has been heavily influenced by high performance sport. And he's now adapted that into a, a, a business context for the benefit of leaders at all levels. And we chat about what CEOs really need to be thinking about and adapting to in our modern world. So I hope that you enjoy my chat with Cameron. Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Julie. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to chat to you and I'm looking forward to really tapping into some of your amazing thinking this morning. So shall we just jump into it? Oh, we should. All right. So I'd, I'd love to start with your CEO experience. Yeah which, you know, you're very well known for. And you were the youngest CEO at age 24. And I just can't fathom that, doing that at that age. But you were the CEO of my fabulous Richmond Tigers, AFL football team, for those who don't know. And then you spent the next 25 years as a CEO. Yeah, pretty much. A few breaks. You know, um, I think we all get to climb various mountains in our life and we get to the top and every so often... um, we get to stay there for a period of time. Every so often we get pushed off the edge and other times we sort of push ourselves off the edge. Or So I had four CEO roles, of which the first one was at Richmond. And you know, I, was, I was 24 and I was I was a young 24 in lots of ways in, in that I was someone who I wasn't any, I, I even joke with people that I, I think I was one of the last kids to reach puberty. You know, I was, I was young physically and I'm not sure you know, how young I was emotionally. I probably was in, in many ways. Uh, but I did grow up in the game. You know, so mm-hmm. I had a, a a life which was vested in the sport uh, and I chose to go with that. So I, I loved the game. I fell in love with the game probably before I fell in love with anything else. But I fell, I fell in love specifically with the Tigers, with Richmond mm-hmm. before, probably before the game in many ways. And my father, Alan Schwab, was secretary of the club and, and they were glory days for the Tigers. So... My identity was, you know, pretty much um, aligned to his right from the start. And so I, I grew up as a son of, you know, when I've spoken to other people who the sons of as well. And and when we and the sons of who have been chosen to actually go into a similar domain to what their you know, their father or their parent did. So I grew up with the game, so I grew up with, you know, people around me who 
uh, would speak openly about sport. So I, I saw the game uh, with its layers relatively early in life, um, you know, both the hard and the good, you know, the good and the bad. And, and they were pretty cutthroat times. It was, the game was very binary, you know, and it probably still is in its own way, but certainly from inside, it was just, if you win, you're a hero. If you lose, you're, you know, you're a failure, basically. That was, mm. the, that was the way of thinking. And so I got to take it on early. And but the Richmond that I, uh, where, where I became the CEO, was a very different Richmond to the one that I'd grown up with. We were on the bottom and broke. And I remember actually talking to my father about the role, and he probably was all over it because he was executive commissioner of the AFL. I'm sure someone would have gone to him before they went to me. And I remember actually saying to him, look, I don't, I don't know if it's a good job. And he basically said, if it was a good job, they probably wouldn't be asking you. Yeah, and, and not, not saying it in a negative I hope you, my interpretation of that is not negative in that he didn't think I was very good. I don't know, mm. there, 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 wouldn't, there was never any sign of that. It was more saying that they wouldn't be turning to a 24-year-old young fellow who's as inexperienced as what I, what I was unless they'd seen something in me to at least um, give me that opportunity. And, um, and I'm probably also assuming they saw that by giving me the role, they're probably going to get a little bit of Alan Schwab as well as Cameron Schwab in yeah, terms yeah. of that as well. So, do you have any, any thoughts about what they did see in you, like reflecting back? Mainly related, I, I was in recruiting at the time, and recruiting probably traditionally was the domain. So, in, in football clubs, there's always been, you know, the the coach is important, the president's important, the oh, the crucial, not important, they're critical. Uh, the president, the coach, the the secretary was the term which it was, and my father was the secretary of Richmond, uh, and they, they were mainly recruiters. That, that, that's what their thing was. And, and even as a, as a young fellow growing up, our Christmas holidays tended to be in places where my father was recruiting. Like we, we had like a Christmas holiday in Pyramid Hill or, or uh, Mildura or whatever. The, like our best Christmas holiday ever was in Adelaide because my father was recruiting a fellow. Craig McKellar from from Adelaide. And I didn't know this at the time. My father, my mum explained this years later. I used to think everyone went on these holidays to these <laughs> these little country towns, you know. Um, then I worked out that everyone was going to Sorrento or Point Lonsdale or somewhere like that. It was beach. Yeah, yeah. We weren't. We were going to like the the heart of the Mallee, you know, in the middle of summer, basically. So the recruiter was a big thing, and and so I think what they saw in me was. As a recruiter, I was at Melbourne at the time. I'd started with uh, Ron Barassi, which was so I grew up with Tom Hafey, and then my first job was working with Ron Barassi. So I was very blessed, oh, yeah. and even and growing up with my dad. Although my parents separated, so I I, I didn't spend my late teens with my dad in that sense. Mm. Um, so it was I had a, I had a colourful but complex upbringing. It would be fair to say. Um, yeah. And then when I went to Melbourne, Ron Barassi gave me an opportunity in recruiting, and uh, and I did okay. We made the finals for the first time in 23 years, and and it was and it was a very storied uh, run into the finals. You know, it was Robbie Flower was was the captain. It was his only final series he got to play in. Jimmy Steins ran over the mark. There was just a lot of things around that story, and uh, and then the next year I was approached by Richmond. Yeah, so I think it was mainly I think they were thinking they were getting me as a recruiter more than they were as a CEO. But that time is a pretty is potentially one of the key attributes a, a CEO could have. So mm. I assume that's what they did. And so it probably was, I was relatively mature in, in football years, but I certainly wasn't in, you know, 
just life's experiences. Yeah, life experience, yeah. If you could pinpoint something, what do you think you would have liked to have known then that you know now that would have helped you in that role? Pretty much everything uh, would be the answer. And, and it might be sometimes you, you have a tendency to, to think of your most recent learnings or your most recent thinking as something you wish you'd always had. Mm. Um, but one of the things I've been working on a lot over the last probably two years, three years, is, is I heard a coach talking once about his team and it was in an American college basketball system and they've got lots of tiers and structures, but he managed this team had managed to go further than any team from that university had ever gone before. And it was it was being talked up as being very historical, and which it probably was. Um, but one stage he almost silenced the press conference and there's a lot of interest in it. To, and, he, and he used a line where, which went something like, if you, if you get to understand what truly matters, if you get to know and understand what truly matters, you get to enjoy what seems to matter. He was saying that well, this is a seems to matter moment. As much as it's a beautiful thing, it is a seems to matter thing because it's just a scoreboard telling. He said, but what truly matters, and he was, he was talking about the growth of the, there was a boy's side or a young men's side, of the young men, that's, and he says that's what truly matters. It's taken me a long time to work out that difference, I think, because I definitely grew up with the winners are the heroes and they're larger than life and the losers are failure and that very binary. And, and the world is presented to, to us in that way, mm. uh, you know, as a heroes and villains, heaven and hell, black, white, all that stuff, you know, Democrats, Republicans, mm. liberal, labour. Whereas we always understand that the nuance sits somewhere in between. So, so probably what I would like to have known then was the difference between what seems to matter and what truly matters. Mm. That's a really interesting um, point that you bring up. And I do, I really, I resonate with that in terms of understanding what truly matters and what seems to matter. Because in the moment, you can really think that something yeah. absolutely is 110% important and you invest all of your energy and as you were talking my mind sort of went to our athletes who have been competing in Japan yes. now they're coming back to where um, I think Howard Springs and they've mm. got to sit for 14 days in isolation yeah. with either their euphoria because they've won or been mm. medaled or their disappointment because yeah. their performance might not have been where they wanted it to be. And I think that's yeah. going to be a really interesting journey for them to sit with that alone. Yeah. It's also a wonderful opportunity for them, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah, I think ultimately we're all makers and I'm, I'm an artist, so it took me a long time to say that, but I, I practice art, so I suppose that caught, that's what I am. But we're all makers and one of and the sort of three things we have to do, I reckon, in terms of the making is we have to be able to make sense of things. You know, mm. How do you make sense of stuff? So so you, you performed at your best you or you didn't perform to your best. You know, there was, you didn't sleep well the night before, you, you slept well, you slept poorly the night before, but you still did a PB. There's all just so many things which would go through your head. And so how do you make sense of things, which is really in, in lots of ways you know, reckoning with the the ambiguity which is going to surround us all the time. Like if 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 life wasn't ambiguous, well, we wouldn't be having the conversations we're having now. It'd be just um, life would be easy. We wouldn't even need leadership if not if not for ambiguity, really. Mm. 
and then and then there's this idea of of making meaning i think you know what, what is your story you know what is the story you're going to tell yourself from from this point onwards you know are you going to tell yourself the story of hero or hardship or you know, which which one which one you want to do because we, we basically are the stories that we tell ourselves so, yeah. you know, in so many ways and then we're also the, the the makers of place i think so so the idea that that you now have to find a place for yourself and often for someone who's been an olympian that that may be now your sense of place could well be not being an athlete anymore you know you, you're you know, Alan Jeans used to say, you know, an athlete dies twice, you know, a footballer dies twice. You know, you, you basically, you've got to shake off one identity and generally it's an identity of which, you know, you're, you've had to be so vested in and others see you as that. And before you've taken your spikes off or your togs off or whatever, you're expected to have a whole new identity for yourself. It's, mm. it's a very difficult, very difficult thing. So that notion of where, where do you belong now? And, and belong can be... You know, as we we're talking before, I live in Dalesford now. So, mm. you know, part of that notion of do you now belong to where you live, the place you live? Do you belong? Where do you fit now? You know, within your family, your friendship group, or all of those sorts of things. But to to to, to find that notion of place, you know, the notion of meaning, the notion of sense, I think we have to create space for that to happen. And so maybe they've got this enforced two weeks period. Might might be if if they just if they just wrote those three words down, sense, meaning, and place. And, and for some of them, it's just because it, it's an interesting Olympics because it's the next one's three years away, not four years away. And that might actually be defining for some of them. They might say, yeah, well, well actually, three years is doable. Four years mightn't be. Yeah. And, and, it, and, and it's, it's, it's not, it's just notional in lots of ways. But I could see how it would make a difference that a lot of the athletes saying, yeah, I did really well, that, you know, but it's only three years to the next one. Yeah. Whereas, for, for people in my world, it's as soon as the season finishes, you're in the trade week, you're into the drafting, you're into the whatever it is. The next season's on you before the, you know, before you've actually almost got your head around the last one. Mm. So that's not so much for these guys. Yeah. So it might actually be a good thing for them, hmm. but it mightn't feel like that. You no, know, I think you know, it might. They might be, you know, to actually have the wherefore to make the most of the space which has actually been created for them. In fact, could be their personal challenge. Mm. Yes, I think it could be too. So I know you, you do a lot of work with leaders and over the last 18 months in particular, you know, our world has evolved significantly. Yeah. Hence, you know, and to your story, you know, priorities have really changed in people. They've, they've, they've connected back to what's really important to them and potentially had a bit of an insight into a life that they were living prior to COVID that wasn't necessarily serving them. So I yeah. think the people dynamic has really changed. What do you think is the biggest shift that leaders and CEOs need to make now, given our current times? And I'm wondering if it sort of links back to that new identity that you were just talking about in terms of how leaders saw themselves and how they mm. need to see themselves now. Yeah, no, no, it could well. One of the inclinations that you have the minute that you are given the title of leader is that somehow you have the answers, mm. you know, that you're, you've actually got an expertise that you didn't actually have before you were actually appointed. It's a, it's a weird feeling, you know, that I remember even as a young CEO looking at 
I basically had never looked at a balance sheet or a profit loss statement in my entire life and I'm running a football club, which is broke, you know, and people are actually asking you to come up with some sort of answer. Well, how, how am I going to come up with any mm. idea? You know, I, I worked out in the end it was just pretty basic maths, you know, that profit equals revenue minus costs and you have to get that balance right. So part of it is, I think, is the this, this idea of... Um, as not leader as knower, as leader as unknower. You know, are you are you are you prepared to? You, every inclination you have is to ride into the room on your white horse as the um, as the the shiny leader. And every so often, there's a bit of that required. People want to know that their leaders are leading, but taking responsibility isn't necessarily saying I have the answer. Mm. Taking responsibility is creating an environment whereby you can create the best outcomes in whatever context you're actually working in. And and often, um, if you're the person who is riding it on your white horse, but probably more damaging is when everyone expects you to ride it on your white horse, so they don't have to take responsibility. So, you know, I'm not going to give this any thought because this bike's going to come in on his white horse. Yes. Whereas if the person is then someone who comes in and at least has the the vulnerability to say, look, I actually don't have the answer here. Clearly, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a view, but I actually don't have the answer. Mm. But I'm confident that the answer is in this room. And by, by doing that, you're then, one, creating a – you're making yourself human. <laughs> That's part of it, which is yeah. actually – you're being yourself and it's much easier to be human and be yourself than make up the human and be and the person you are each time you walk in the room. Secondly, there are things which happen in life of which we have absolutely no control over and to pretend that we actually do is just playing with your own head, mm. really. You know, that, that if anyone thought that we had any control over what's happened over the last 18 months, we, we, the only thing we get to control is the response, really. You know, that's the only thing we get to control. We didn't control the situation. But we do control the response, and the outcome is based on the, you know, your your ability to respond to that situation. So, so you get to be yourself. You actually get to recognise that uh, life is, you know, is really unknown and unknowable. Um, and the third one is you, but the most important one probably is you get to create a space to find out how good your team is. Who, who in the room has bought in? Who in the room has? has got the personal characteristics, if you like, who's prepared to go deep, you know, who's prepared to work hard, who's prepared to bring a mindset as, as someone who is, is going to grow and who in the room's actually got a little bit of insight which might help as well. And, and so the, really the role of any leader at any time is to say, well, what environment do I need to do which gives us the best, the best opportunity for the best outcomes, but also at the same time gets to help people grow and develop and evolve and mm. be a better human and learn from the experience they've had and and make mistakes, pick themselves up, brush themselves off, go again, knowing that they're going to be supported um, by you. What I find even in the COVID environment is that people are saying, oh, you can't do culture in COVID environments. Well, my experience is probably with those people is they weren't doing culture anyway. They were taking culture... As a, for granted, because people happen to be in the same room as each other. Yes. You know, in a metaphoric sense, but we're in a different room now, and um, and that's the environment in which we're now operating in, and and any environment of which, and, and it might be football prepares you pretty well for that because 
the one thing about sport is that is that you disappointment's coming your way at some point. You know, uh, conflict is coming your way. Um, uh, there's going to be sort of little implosions in coming your way. You know, you, you don't you won't have to go looking for it. It's, it's going to land on your desk. So you've got to be prepared for that. Yeah. But so it's inevitable. It is, whereas, yeah. Whereas yeah. in business, really, that's something that you try and avoid to the yeah. degree. Well, you, you don't want um, – you're obviously avoiding disaster, you know, in your own mm. way. But, you know, and you've heard me speak before, but the, the idea, I think, is that ambiguity is an opportunity and it's an opportunity for leaders. And you can you can you can go into a default mindset and cling to old idea old ideas if you want to, but basically you're ignoring your own ignorance when that happens. Mm. And, and also, probably in many ways, you might have the right answer, but the problem's actually changed. So, so right answer, wrong question. You know. Yeah. So the idea is you have to, and I'm not necessarily saying you sell the farm to come up with a different idea, but you at least have to um, ask better questions. Yes. You, know, you at least have to try different things. And and by trying different things, you then create a feedback loop, which then you go, okay, well, was that a good idea or not a good idea? But even if it was a bad idea, you at least know you've learned from that. Mm. Um, and so really and really, the lead, leaders are in the 49-51 business, you know, the, the, the 49% 51, the most damn. And in fact, if you're not doing the 49-51, you're probably doing someone else's job for them. Mm. And you're neither growing you or growing them. Rich Charlesworth's yeah. got a wonderful way of thinking. He he says, I go in search of conflict because otherwise it appears at the worst possible time. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so you deal with the conflict, you deal with the issues. You deal with the issues when, you know, when it's not half time in a game. Mm. You know, you, you if it, if the problem's emerging during the course of the game, well you probably haven't dealt with it in a way that you should have. Yeah. And now for a quick break. If you are listening to this podcast, then you understand how important leadership is to your success. And that starts with you. How you lead yourself will impact the performance of your business, your team, and your career. That is why we developed the Role Model Effect program. This program is designed for those who want to sharpen their leadership tools and be a leader that people want to work with. It's seven weeks, a value-packed and laser-focused course spent on crafting your leadership for success. You will walk away with absolute clarity on what you need to do to be a successful leader. The results our participants are achieving speak for themselves. So, if you understand that leadership is the key to your success, contact Julie to find out more at juliehyde.com.au. So, I know you've come up with a term called reflective competency, which I think really feeds into... I did steal that as well. Oh, did you? (laughs) I'm attributing it to you. (laughs) That's good. No, what it was, this is this is a wonderful part of teaching is that I was presenting something because it goes through that whole frame of you, know, you start off as a leader, you start off on high, high on confidence but low on capability. You know, yeah. it's, there's not many things you start off high on confidence and low on capability. Leadership's one of them because you're, you know, you've had your tyres pumped to get the job, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, yeah. you know, it's the natural next step for you. And then after, and so you've got a whole lot of unconscious incompetency. And then by the time you've got conscious incompetency, your confidence is shot, you know. So you, you, and then the goal is to get yourself up into the conscious competency and then the unconscious competency. And I used to do this little presentation. And I think I was just think it was pretty cool. <laughs> and then, um, and then someone who actually is a psychologist, uh, she said, um, 
she said, you know, there's another level. I reckon it's much more your stuff because I know you talk about space and all that stuff. She said, there's actually another layer of competency, which is reflective competency. And, and it just made perfect sense. It was like, it was like one of those ones where, because uh, unconscious competency only helps you if nothing's changing. Yeah. So, so you know, and, and, and the, the metaphor I use of that is, you know, when you go overseas, one day we'll get to do that again, but you, my wife's, you know, from the US and, and so you go over there and you almost get run over when you try to cross the road because your unconscious competency doesn't help you anymore, you know, because yeah. you, you know, you try and cross the road in New York, it takes me about 15 minutes, you know, I'm just, I don't know which way to look. Um, but so you each, you, you've almost become, um, consciously incompetent again you know in in some ways and for something you've taken for granted so the the idea of reflective competency is that um you could be in a situation where you start to ignore your own ignorance unless you build a practice of reflection and Mm -hmm. and that's so challenging because we we live in an environment which is grabbing our attention in all these other ways and we live and, and people are unbelievable. They're, they're far more clever than what we are at getting our attention. You know, I, I don't do a lot on Facebook, but when I'm there, I just find myself hard, finding it hard to get off it. You know, yeah. I, I might go onto Facebook to work out where my, my cycling group I ride with is leaving from or something like that. Then, I'm, then I watch a bit of footy stuff and I'm updating myself on what's going on. And, and then about an hour and a half later, I'm watching orangutan videos or some other <laughs> thing. <laughs> like you, you don't, you don't, you just lost control of your own attention you yeah. know um and uh, you know that's why you know and, and again you, you're going to credit me for probably with it, but i got that one from seth goad and the idea of busy is the new lazy busy is the new lazy uh, and uh, and it is it's like this badge of honor yeah it's really if someone said you know i managed to bring a two-hour practice of reflection into my life most days i i, I know he'll be achieving more I know know who will be doing more of the important work, if you like. Mm. That that, that would be my take. I also find it really interesting when people say that they don't have enough, they don't have the time to sit down and think. Yeah. They don't see it as something that really benefits them. No, because it's not, it doesn't feel productive. Mm. It's, it's, I I can only reflect on, on the practice of, um, of how we develop athletes in in the world I come from. So, and and I think it relates to our parenting experience as well. Mm. So, so the, the the practice of athlete development, and often even in classroom development, probably works on the same. Is is cohort learning, as in we learn within a group, and, and learning within a group um, has its ups and downs, has its benefits. But one of the one of the reasons, if if we if it, if there's high trust within the group. It, we're actually happy to be called out in front of our teammates yeah. so because it's not personal sport we will say we'll say to you we'll go julie you should have pushed back harder at that time because we need to defend much more quickly than that so you need to get back into this spot that well everyone else in the room's going oh i didn't know that, that that's what the case because whereas if we try to do that singularly that that's a really difficult thing to do because that means you know that's 10 Five minute, you know, 10, 20 minute conversations mm. as compared with one 20 minute conversation. Yeah. And so we all, we go, we got to learn from each other's learnings. That, and that's one of the critical elements of sport. But it's got to be delivered right. If it's a much more personal message, you know, the feedback shouldn't happen in that way. Yes, you are in, the door is closed, you know, and mm. it's just one on one in that situation. 
So cohort learning is a really important part. But what, where we can all learn is the second phase of it is, um, is this idea of productive struggle, productive struggle. So most of you reflective time, one of the reasons we, we, we avoid reflection is because it's going to be a bit of a struggle for us. Mm-hmm. It's not a, there's no sense of progress with it in an obvious sense mm-hmm. until such time as you get this feeling of progress and, and it is a much better progress than, um, than answering emails in your inbox. It's, you know, like even, I mentioned this morning about this idea of, of in, that what truly matters, what seems to matter, and then Pippa Grange with her idea about winning shallow and winning deep. And I thought those two things align. Mm. And so that, that idea of productive struggle is, is really underestimated. It's, it's, there's no growth without some form of discomfort. And so one of the reasons we avoid the reflective thing, even though we think it's going to be you know, nice just to see, but if you're, doing, if you're making progress with it, it's actually a bit difficult. Mm. And then the third part of it is this idea of deliberate practice deliberate practice. You've actually got to practice the process. You've got to practice. You've got to keep coming up with a system which works really well for you. And, and my system would be different to yours. Mm. You know, I, I used to think, for instance, that how many books I could get through in a year was a badge of honour, whereas now I've worked out that if I'm just churning them through, I'm, I'm not growing or learning at all, mm. whereas, whereas now it's a far more reflective, deep, deeper work, Cal Newport type, you know, making notes, not yeah. just not just highlighting, but asking myself, what did I learn from? So you finish a chapter and say, well, what did I get from that chapter? Without going back over your stuff, what did I get from that chapter? Yeah. You know, because as you know, sometimes you can, it's like, it's like driving, I'm living in Dalesford, I can drive home, uh, drive back to Melbourne and I can hardly remember the trip. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what reading a book can be like if you're not careful. Mm. You know, you've read the chapter, but you actually you've just read the chapter. You've sort mm. of churned through it. You haven't actually, you haven't slowed down. You haven't absorbed it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, that's what? the word. You haven't. There's nothing. There's nothing gone in. Yeah. Because you haven't connected anything. So even when, when people do my courses now, I say, don't just write down what you hear. Write down what you think and feel. Yeah. You know, that's that's a difference. Yeah, totally. you know? and, and that's what you're the master of in terms of getting people, it's like getting them to feel, really connecting to the story, through the stories that you're telling and connecting, yeah. I suppose linking it back to their their own life and getting them to actually get into that space of feeling. Yes. And I know like from a long time in corporate that probably wasn't necessarily or that wasn't encouraged. Like you didn't. No show your emotions, particularly like emotions of being sad or upset or anything yeah. like that. It's like you yeah. just get over it and move on. Just deal with it. Yeah. We're always going to have to have, to have a little element of that, aren't we? You know, we, we do have to have a capacity to move forward. Totally. That's where yeah, resilience kicks in. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, as long as, you know, it's not just, you know, papering over the cracks. Mm. And I did a lot of that. You know, when you go into an old house and they've got like 47 layers of wallpaper, they've just whacked it over the top, the top, the top, the top, you know, if you're watching Grand Designs or something like that, and then they take the last piece of wallpaper off and the wall falls down. Yeah. It's like that sort of, <laughs> it's that sort of feeling. You know, we, should yeah. have, we should have kept that last bit or we should have kept that 1952 wallpaper up there, you know. So you've got to be able to deal with things and hopefully you're dealing th- with things in a, in a healthy way. Mm. But again, that's the environment that we seek to create. So if we're if 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 we're creating binary workplaces where you're either a winner or a loser or 
whatever. Well, we're going to get binary responses. You know, yeah. that's just how it is. So, yeah. so that's why I love you know Steve Kerr from the Golden State Warriors, one of who who, who featured in the you know in the the, the unbelievable uh, series the um, yeah you know, with Jordan on the Netflix series and the his coach. As coach of the team, he, he realised that the one thing which professional basketball had lost was joy, was joy. That the players are actually attracted to the sport because of the joy that it gave them because you can only get that level of expertise and excellence now, you know, by doing something which gives you, you enjoy, you know. Mm. Um, so they've actually got one of their three values now is joy. This mm. is a, one of the highest performing sporting clubs in the world has joy as one of its three values. And so when they're actually then compare, then when you do, you review performance. Well, one of the performance measures, if, you, if you're talking about your values, that's what you're reviewing your performance against. Well, if one of your performance, one of your values is joy, and you say, well, we failed that. We didn't bring joy. We didn't do joy very well. So how do we actually become good at joy? Mm. It's a different take, isn't it? Oh, totally. So, so because the, they actually realised that the players who should be loving it most, because this is what you've spent your whole life doing, and I, I know the pro- professional sport sits on that cusp, you know, where, don't worry, the mate, you know, when, when you're coming and you're playing in a big game and you're part of a big game, the, the, I wake up in the morning and the first thought is, even though there's the excitement that you're playing in a final or whatever it might be, mate, it is almost an overwhelming feeling of dread is the first thought you have. You know, but then the dread is replaced by the exhilaration and, you know, and, and really hoping like buggery you win. You know, that's the, you know, um, that's the other part. Yeah. So, so therefore, if we create environments where we say, that, yeah, actually, self-expression, joy, you know, but it's got to be within the sanctity of the team, mm. you know. So, what, you know, if, if your humour is coming at a cost to my well-being. Yes. You know, that, let's, let's be careful there. If yeah. your humour is now sexist or racist or mm. bigoted in any shape or form, well, well you'll get called out mm. and you've got to be prepared for that. Yeah. Yeah, mm. awesome. So linking back to what you said, and I really want to tap into this because I love what you say about stop talking and start teaching, right? Yeah. For, for leaders and it's something that obviously the sporting community is extremely good at, not yeah. so great in our corporate environment or our, our business context. I think sport has worked that out. Sport, we call mm. at least we call it coaching. Yes. Um, and I think there's a difference between teaching and coaching. Mm. Um, teaching is unapologetically about how we grow the individual, yeah, about for the individual, for their individual sake. Mm. Um, sometimes it obviously gets too much into teaching them so they can pass an exam, you know, that's, you know, and which can, again, that exam, you know, I, I did an MBA and there'd be, if I had to do, if I had to do five of the subjects I did in my MBA now, I'd get like 1%. I, I haven't retained one piece of the, but the ones I was really into were game changers. Don't worry about that. Yeah. But if I had to do corporate finance again with Bob Officer, and he used to be one of those guys who'd cold call you. Like I'd, I'd wake up in a cold sweat. Like I'm, I'm in my 30s waking up in a cold sweat because I'm worried about getting cold called by the bloody lecturer or something like that. And I'm thinking, <laughs> surely I've, I've outgrown that, that sort of well, such low self-esteem that I'm going to be exposed for not knowing my corporate finance or something. 
somebody did. And as I said, if I had to do another exam tomorrow, I'd get 1%. So, so the teaching, if we're not careful, can be to create an outcome, which is the value of which is dubious, but in most cases, hopefully not. Whereas coaching is coaching someone in the context of a group, a team, mm -hmm. an organisation. So, so we, if you're part of a team, Julie, we are coaching you as as it relates to um, uh, an outcome that the team's trying to mm. yeah, generate in itself. So, I think there's a little difference, but it's still in the end is my capacity to build a relationship with you such that you know that you recognise that there's perhaps some areas or aspects which would help your personal performance and our team performance if, if you are able to get better at them. Mm. Our, our first inclination when someone comes in the room without the answer is just to give them the answer because mm. that's a very, um, that's a very uh, transactional, easy, you're there for a minute and a half and, um, and you're out. Yeah. Whereas to teach someone is, is a far more effortful process on behalf of both you and also the individual as well. Mm. So most of the time people just want to be told. Yeah. But if you actually can show them the benefit of being taught, and it's the classic, um, you know, and, and I use the parenting metaphor, and probably my, my favourite metaphor in leadership is we our, our role is to build a child for the path, not a path for the child, mm. a child for the path. And that's, again, I've stolen that. That's Brene Brown. Um, but I'm a, I'm a parent of a transgender child, so... I'm thinking, thank goodness we built a child and we and we just didn't say this is the only path you go on. Yeah. So so she's she's now twenty two and changed gender at sixteen, seventeen. And so to actually now think of the path that she has chosen for herself, um, wasn't the one that we chose for, you know. But I'm so proud that she's actually made the choices she has and, and she now feels a sense of belonging, whereas she's probably spent her first 16 or well, most of her first 16 or 17 years trying to fit in, mm. which is a waste of energy, a terrible waste of energy, belonging, energising. Yeah. So the teaching the teaching piece builds a little bit on that. Can we build a child for the path? And yeah. and unfortunately, the busy gets in the road of that, the attention, the, you know, because you, you've actually got to take a step back because if you were, if you were teaching me something, you would you can't teach the next person in exactly the same way as you teach me. So, so how, how so, so the, fir the first thing is only employ people who want to learn. Mm. That, that would be the first thing, um, who are prepared to be unlearners and unknowers and have a curiosity and are prepared to put the work in and mm. that type of thing. Yeah, but I think it's a, I, I would say it's, it, there can't be a more important aspect of leadership than teaching, coaching, mentoring. And they're all slightly different, those three things, yeah. but only because I've defined them in my own mind as being a little bit different. But, yeah, I think they're, in, they're interchangeable for most people. Yeah. Like I love everything that you've got to share. So first of all, I, I like to ask my guests this question because mm. this podcast is called Making It Count. Yeah. And so I would love to understand how do you feel that you're making it count in your world? Um. I think a little bit about the parenting idea and one of the learnings I had is I remember when, when Evie was Lockie and so born born a boy, obviously, um, and you put a lot of thought into your kids' names, don't you? You know, when you when you and I remember when when she first explained that she was changing gender, my, my first thought was that the loss of the name 
more than anything. You know, it was, and it's often hard when you, with your pronouns because he, he, when he was growing up, she as she is now, you know, sort of thing. So he at the time, because every Schwab has always been Schwabby. So I thought we'd come up with a name which had actually become, like Lockie can be a name in its own right, you know, because I reckon I lost my first name when I was about six <laughs> <laughs> and never got called anything different. I've sort of reclaimed it in more recent times probably. And so that was sort of like idea of lost name. But then we'd have these deeper conversations about, you know, the idea of changing gender and and because most people say oh, it's a lot easier now than what it was. And and it's a funny thought because you go, yeah, it is. But it's not easy. <laughs> it's easier than what it was because yeah. we made it just ridiculously hard or yes. crazy, you know, just full of bias and prejudice and all that. And so in, in having this conversation, she'd often say, well, you know, your generation, it wasn't possible. Your generation were closed-minded. And we probably were, but there were some people, there were some people who took the conversation forward to the point where you can now make the choice you have in a way which is perhaps the generation before wasn't. So making account for me is how do we take important conversations forward? Mm. Knowing that you won't necessarily get it to the point where it is as where it needs to actually be or go or land or whatever it might be. So how do you take the conversation forward? And an example of that, for instance, is at Melbourne Football Club, we took the conversation forward in terms of women's football. And, and really, I, I, I would doubt whether the, the I, know, I certainly know that it wouldn't be where it is now, but it may, have, it may be catching up had it not been for the work that we did at that time. So we, we shaped the conversation. Um, so the, the, taking the conversation forward is, uh, uh, for me, is about how we shape the next conversation in a way which is different to the way that it's always been shaped. Mm. And, and I think the best people I've met in life have been those. Mm. But Brassy was a shaper. Mm. Kevin Sheedy's a shaper. They, they, they know that the competition is sort of shaping them a little bit all the time. The world's shaping you, which it does, but they're prepared to, to put themselves out up there to shape it in a way where it actually is a, is a different place to where they found it. Mm. And, um, and, then, and, then, and that doesn't stop them from having another go at it, another go at it, another go at it, you know, because they've got this immense curiosity about them. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It absolutely yeah. makes sense. That conversation that you led with the women's football. How many people, yeah. you know, are so great. Well, well Debbie, Debbie Lee was the key person and she was working for us, but it was really mm. almost the recognition that it was blokes like me, midlife blokes like me who'd held the conversation back. Mm. And if, if we're going to have a serious conversation about, and I'm talking specifically about football and women, you know, without the, the bigger conversation, how can we have a serious conversation with the women but not create an opportunity for them to play the game at the same level as what we're providing mm. for men? Mm. And then 57,000, oh, that will never happen. Then 57,000 people turn up at Adelaide Oval to watch a grand final. So, so does the conversation need to be taken further still? Of course it does. Yes. yes. But it's now at least possible. There's a, we're, the point of departure is such now that we're, it's different to what it was. And it all started with an exhibition game in 2012. Mm. And, and, a, and a want for Melbourne as the oldest AFL club and the first AFL club. Why wouldn't it be the first club to have field a women's team? Yeah. And then we got on the phone to find clubs to play with and no one wanted to play us. And eventually Susan Alberti and the Western Bulldogs yeah. said, yeah, we can play us. Mm. And it made sense because the two clubs did the, you know, the breast cancer pink lady on the, on the MCG. So there was a sort of a, a platform for that. So that yeah. was the point of departure for another thing, another thing, another thing. Yeah. 
and um, and Debbie Lee, who is as well credentialed a player who's ever played the game, has has then become you know the the evangelist in that the, the sport actually needed. The same way as Sheedy became the evangelist, you know, for Indigenous players, or Brassy became the evangelist for the nationalisation of the competition. Mm. You know, or when we think about, we take for granted all of those things now. Um, but I doubt whether they were that that it would have been impossible had they not have been people prepared to take the conversation forward. And I'm not by any means putting myself in in that world or that dimension. I'm, I'm just saying I'd like to think I'm someone who in my own little one square centimetre of the world is, I think, making it count is about taking the conversation forward. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And thank you so much for sharing. And um, even through the work that I've done with you, with your masterclass, you certainly have made it count for me and thank got you. me thinking differently and taking that conversation forward. So I want to thank you for being my guest today. And you are one of the voices that I believe that leaders really need to tap into and to enable them to understand that slowing down and creating that space to have the conversations hmm. that they need to is absolutely necessary now and to avoid those default responses, as you as you call yeah. it. So thank you. And what I'll be doing is I'll be sharing the links in terms of how people can get in touch with you. So highly right. recommend your masterclass and also to get you on board for team workshops and speaking opportunities. So thank you so much, Cameron. No worries. You take care. Anna. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. And I hope that you have gained some great ideas and feel inspired to get out there and make what you do count for your leadership, your business and your life. Please do leave a review for this podcast and please share it with your network. Send any feedback or suggestions for future guests by emailing me julie at juliehide.com.au. For now, let's get out there and make it count.